When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome to Car Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm your host, Scott Benjamin, and today we have got a uh, what I think is a fascinating list that we're going to kind of follow through. We've done this in the past on Car Stuff before, and, you know, of course, with two people, it's a little easier to, you know, go back and forth with these, but um, I feel like uh, this is a, a pretty good one, and um, I, I want you to understand that uh, this isn't kind of the end-all of, of lists, of course, and this is somebody's opinion, and uh, there's a lot of these out there. You can find these all over the place, but the list that I'm, I'm going to be reading today is the 17 best bad cars ever built. Now, that's a a strange way to say it, I understand. So what we're talking about is essentially kind of like the best of the worst, the, the top of the bottom, if you will. That's <laughs> if, you, if you want to kind of flip it around that way and, and, say, and say it that way. You know, the thing is, like, a lot of these cars are, are going to uh, um, strike some kind of uh, uh, opinion within you. And you might you might say, well, I, I had one of these and I absolutely loved it. Or, yeah, I had one and I agree with you that it was terrible. Or I've heard of these cars before and they're, they're just a, a miserable mess. But... Um, Hopefully it's a decent list and you guys will uh, will appreciate it. And what I want really is uh, is for you to kind of write in and, and chime in with some of your own best of the worst, if you will, because um, I know that there's a lot that don't make this list. Clearly that, you know, they're, they're lists of, you know, 100 cars that uh, people have kind of grown to hate over the years. And uh, and some people do agree, some people don't agree with those. But, you know, one thing that I want to mention here, and it's it's something that I had read about this week while I was reading this article and, and many others like it. I found that a lot of cars that uh, in the past had been praised by automotive journalists were then later deemed to be kind of bad cars. And it happens. It's, it's, it doesn't happen all the time, but what happens is, you know, the, um, the manufacturer gets all excited about a brand new product that's coming out. And they bring journalists to their property or, you know, they take them on some ride and drive event somewhere. And they bring out uh, a series of these cars, you know, a selection of these cars for the journalists to drive and, and allow them to kind of, you know, run through their paces either for a day on their property or take them out somewhere or whatever. And um, the funny thing about this is they will give the journalists 
like the absolute best version of that car. You know, it has the highest trim level. It has all the options. There are people on hand to make sure that everything is running smoothly and all the software is working right. You know, the uh, um, everything is exactly the way it should be in that vehicle. So these are what a lot of journalists would call like ringer cars. You know, they're the ones that are brought out, you know, specifically for this purpose to uh, um, impress the automotive press so that um, they can, you know, then write about them favorably and maybe even, you know, it, get them in early on some awards. And that's happened too where, you know, the the automotive journalists have heaped some, you know, praise and awards and, you know, everything on on a vehicle and then as the car is launched and, and, you know, like maybe they make some production changes or maybe, you know, things don't always work out. And, you, of course, you don't have an engineer standing by to fix everything that goes wrong with it at the moment that it goes wrong. So that happens and, you know, and, and the people, you know, as people drive them and the people uh, start to become familiar with them, uh, the car is sort of a letdown. And uh, there have been a lot of times in history that that's happened. And I always find that fascinating when, you know, the uh, the journalists have to kind of step back and say, like, yeah, we, we made a mistake on that one and here's the reason why. You know, this it was just, um, again, one of those ringer cars. So I thought that was kind of a funny, funny article to read. And uh, if you can, just do some research on that and find out what that's all about, too. Uh, but let's dig right into our list here, and we will start with one that I think very few people, actually, you know what, I'm going to say people have an initial reaction to this one, but then um, later, if you talk to somebody that actually owns one of these, they're actually quite happy with the car, and it is the Pontiac Aztec. Now, the Pontiac Aztec is uh, was built from 2000 to around 2005 in Mexico, and there was a uh, corporate counterpart to that. There was the Buick Rendezvous, which is a lot is very similar, had a different look to it, though. And um, that's what turns a lot of people off to the Aztec is the appearance of this thing. It's an ugly car, really. I mean, and that's, again, my opinion, but uh, you're going to hear a lot of that, you know, all throughout the day today. So, um, four-door SUV, it just it just never really took off. People that did drive them really appreciated them, though. They really liked them. And, and chances are, if you get if you know somebody that owns one right now, they're probably still happy with it. I mean, from what I hear, if you can get inside one and drive one, you would like it enough to buy it. But that was the thing. It was a hurdle that a lot of people couldn't get over is the, the outward appearance of this. Um, I guess you can still get them kind of cheap on eBay if you want to try that. You can try that avenue to get one or on Craigslist or wherever. Um, but the thing was, it was a very satisfying car to drive, I guess, at the in the end, and used in one of my favorite TV series in Breaking Bad, of course, Walter White's car. I don't know. I thought it was an interesting vehicle for this for this list anyway. And, and I can see why it's included in something like this. Uh, the the uh, Again, just <laughs> a bad-looking car, but it's, it's a very functional car. So, uh, you know, can go either way on that one. The next one on the list, the AMC Pacer. Now the Pacer is another one. This is this is a second car on the list here that I don't know. It's, uh, it's I've never driven a Pacer. I've been around Pacers before. I've had friends that have owned friends that have owned them. Uh, I guess friends, families that have owned them. They were parents, you know, at the time when I was y- much younger. Uh, it was built from 1975 to 1979. It's a heavy car. Believe it or not, a Pacer weighs somewhere around 3,000 pounds. So it's a it's a great big heavy car. It has a, a terrible reputation. But the thing is, it's it's a kind of a nice little wagon, and uh, it's got a lot of cool little features to it. And and it's another one that I guess if you get in it and then you drive it, you would actually be happy with it. You know, it's of course it was used in Wayne's World in the movie, <laughs> infamously. Uh, was it Garth? I think drove one with uh, with flames painted on the side and everything. It was kind of a cool version of that. Um, I think it even came back later in another movie, a sequel, uh, even cooler looking. Um, 
But anyways, it's a it's a cool little car. Um, we should probably talk about the Gremlin too at some point, but uh, maybe we'll get to that in another another episode. But next one on the list here is oh, this is one that uh, I don't I don't know if many people will have many good things to say about this one really at all. The Chevy Vega, and the Chevy Vega was built between 1970 and 1977. It was uh, it was introduced as a 1971 model year car. And interesting thing about this one, and I know that this character has come up many times in car stuff's history. Um, it, it was uh, created under the reign of John DeLorean. So when John DeLorean worked for Chevrolet, the Vega was one of the vehicles that he was uh, kind of responsible for. He was um, in charge of that division that, that created that. And um, there were a lot of problems with this car. I guess it had a lot of rust issues. It was breaking down all the time. Um, it, just, it, it was supposed to kind of make its inroads, I guess, with the the group of people that were starting to uh, transition over to the imports, the smaller imports that were fuel efficient and and uh, just uh, much more um, garageable car, I guess, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> compared to the uh, the big cars that we were we were looking at at the time. You know, the uh, 19, 20 foot long boats that were, uh, you know, in everybody's driveway during those times in the, in the early 1970s. It's not a great car. It did have these rust issues. It was just, a, it was a, a mechanical nightmare for a lot of people. Other people I've heard that have owned these in the past said, oh, it was a fantastic car. I, I really like mine, but um, <laughs> yeah, you did have to deal with, you know, horrible oil leaks and you had to deal with, uh, you know, like the, the car would smoke every time you, you started it up. Just build quality was in general poor, but for the tie-in alone with John DeLorean and, and maybe, uh, you know, some of the history that comes along with that, it's, it's worth looking into um, if you want to dig into the history of one of these. Um, it, it's kind of fascinating. One that I think no one will uh, argue on this list is the next one, the Ford Pinto. And the Ford Pinto uh, was built between 1971 and 1980. And uh, there was also a, a Mercury version of this car. It was called the Bobcat that was built between 1974 and 1980. Uh, you could get it in three different models. You could buy um, you know, the two-door fastback sedan that had a little trunk attached to it. There was also the three-door hatchback and then a two-door station wagon, which, I don't know, little station wagons are kind of cool, so that might have been kind of fun to own. But the problem was this was an unsafe car, and I think we all know exactly what happened with this. You know, I know that Ben and I have talked about this in the past um, on car stuff as well. We had um, not a whole show focused on this vehicle, but I do know that during a show that we called uh, the 10 Most Terrifying Manufacturing Defects uh, from 2016, uh, you can go back into our archives on, on carstuffshow.com and find that show. And, uh, and we do talk at length about the Ford Pinto and exactly what went wrong there. Of course, there, you know, the safety this, – this car brings up a lot of issues, you know, it's safety issues, business ethics, you know, a lot of, a lot of other issues come up um, – when you talk about this and, you know, the internal uh, cost-benefit analysis that happened and, you know, why they didn't fix the problem that they knew they had, it did lead to some deaths. Um, you know, you would think that it killed everybody that owned one, but it didn't. It was uh, it was something around the neighborhood of uh, 27, 28 deaths, I believe, something like that. And, uh, and those are the ones in the accidents that resulted in fire. There were a lot of injuries, and you know we'll tell you all about the fix and and what they eventually did to to correct the problem. Um, but again, go back to that ten most terrifying manufacturing defects show from 2016, and uh, and you'll find a lot more information about the uh, about the Ford Pinto. And I don't know about the Bobcat, maybe a little bit about that. We'll see. All right, next one on the list here. This is uh, this. I think this one might divide a lot of people. 
I'm not a big fan of this car myself personally. This is the Chrysler PT Cruiser Convertible. Now, they spelled out the convertible in particular because this one has, uh, well, I'll just put it this way. It has a unique look to it for a convertible. Um, this is a car that was originally supposed to be a Plymouth brand vehicle. But as you know, the Plymouth brand went defunct in 2001. So when this car was being launched in 2000, Daimler Chrysler, who was the parent company at the time, already knew that uh, the Plymouth brand was going to be going away. So they decided to bring that over to the Chrysler lineup of cars. And it was made in Mexico and also in Austria. Uh, that's where they were manufactured. It was built between 2000 and 2010. It was supposed to look like, I mean, the whole thing overall is supposed to look like a 1949 Chevy Suburban. That's the uh, that's the car that it's kind of styled after. And uh, I don't know. Some people see it. Some people don't. But a lot of people just think it's blocky. It's uncomfortable. It, it just doesn't look good. It's underpowered. It's just kind of an, an awkward-looking convertible as well. So, um, gosh, I, I don't know. There, there's, there's so much more to cover in this list. You know, and we'll get to it in just a moment after we take a word from our sponsor. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, and we're going to continue with our list here. I think we just covered the uh, the PT Cruiser convertible, and that was uh, what a nightmare that one was. I can tell you another one that was uh, a bit of a nightmare for a lot of people, and that is the Renault Dauphine. Now, the Dauphine is uh, a car that was built between 1956 and 1967, and uh, <laughs> maybe the sole reason that this one had problems is because um, of, at the time, French engineering. And French engineering at the time, the French built cars 
were not fantastic. Renault's had some issues, some quality control issues at the time. And I, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't even know how they're doing now. I'm going to have to dig into the Renault story a little more and find out what's going on with them now. And I think they, I think they're producing fine automobiles now, but at the time, and again, qualifying that with at the time, French engineering was really, really poor. I had a, a former boss, the, the guy that I worked for just before coming here to work, uh, you know, doing this podcast here in Atlanta. And uh, this is a decade ago, maybe more, probably 12 years ago. And he had one that he drove through college. And this guy was big. I mean, when you look at, when you look at um, the Dauphine, it's a small car. When I say big, I mean, the guy was like, he was proportional, but he was tall. He was like six foot four, six foot five. I don't know how he got himself into and out of that car, um, but he was constantly lamenting the fact that he owned this this car for so long during college, and it was always breaking down, always giving him trouble. That's the only personal experience, and that's only like secondhand. But um, it was it was um, assembled all over the place. I mean, we say that you know the engineering is is French. It was assembled everywhere, though. I mean, it was assembled in, in, of course, in France, Mexico, Spain. Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, Italy, Brazil, Israel, Belgium. It was built in a lot of different places, and I think there are even more than that. That's just a, a shorter list. Um, but uh, so you can't completely blame it. But uh, I guess it wasn't uh, wasn't a quick car either. You know, it was, uh, but, it, but it was kind of that, that mid fifties small car that people really wanted. Um, I, I guess the acceleration was really really poor on this thing. <laughs> in this in this article, I'll tell you what it says. Uh, it says it went from zero to sixty in thirty two seconds. Now I don't know if that's true or not. It might have. It might have been something like that. Um, but it did say unless it's being pushed off a cliff, at which point it would finally know what acceleration felt like. Ah. Yeah, I like I like snarky lines like that at the end of uh, you know some of these lists that uh, that are calling out some bad vehicles. Now this one, the next one on the list is something that, to be quite honest with you, I'm not sure why it made this list. It's it's a one of a kind vehicle. It was a a prototype car that was built or a cycle car really. Um, it's an American cycle car. It's the Scripps Booth by Autogo. And uh, I guess the buy part is because it has two wheels, but this is a really un- unusual looking vehicle. It's kind of a, it looks like a motorcycle at the front, but it has a V8 engine and a very narrow car body at the back end. And then again, a single wheel. But then it also has these outrigger wheels that come out from the back of it. And that's for stability. You know, when you're in a stoplight or whatever, you, you can manually put those wheels down. Um, there was really, I mean, this is a, such a strange addition to this list. It was built, uh, well, the company, I should say, Scripps Automobile Company, was only around from 1908 to 1912. So that's the era of vehicle that we're talking about. And there was only one of these built. And the car that was built is now on display at the uh, the Detroit Historical Society, which is actually a museum in downtown Detroit, um, with a lot of other uh, non-automotive related stuff that's that's going on there. You know, they have stuff from like the uh, the fur trapping days. Uh, they have just Detroit history stuff. Um, but if you do want to see this one vehicle, that's where you can find it at the Detroit Historical Society. And uh, just go online for a photo. And it, actually, this car comes up a lot of times if you search. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, if you do a Google search for, you know, ugly cars or, or you know, just the worst cars ever built or something like that, um, uh, you'll find that you'll see a, uh, not a, but the Scripps Booth by Autogo. All right, the next on the list is uh, one that we've already talked about here on the new car stuff, uh, the Bricklin SV1. That made the list for uh, one of these best of the worst cars ever made. And and I guess after, you know, hearing the history of that whole thing, you probably would understand why, uh, why this car would be included on the list. I mean, it was an interesting idea. It just never really 
found its way, I guess. Um, and one thing that, I, you know, we, since we've already covered this one pretty much in depth, I don't know if I really need to go into a whole lot of detail on this, but I do want to mention one thing. You know, in that first episode, I talked about how um, I've only seen one of these in person, and that was at the Auburn Court Duesenberg Museum. And I was confident that that car was orange in color. Well, I went back to my desk later that day, and I looked up the vehicle, and in fact, it was a green car that was on display. Now, it was a Brooklyn, of course, but it was green. I don't know why I had orange stuck in my head, maybe because there are so many photos of orange cars online uh, that, <laughs> that that had stuck out. But I found that... Um, it was a car that was on display. It's no longer there. It was on display for a, a total of about 12 years. I think I saw one, one place that said it was 14 years, but it was on display for a long, long time. It was, it was loaned to the museum from someone else, someone who owned the vehicle, and I guess they wanted it back. They took it back to their collection or for their collection. Uh, but again, that car was not orange. I know it's not huge you know, discrepancy for me to note here, but I figured I might as well mention it because I felt kind of like a fool when I was so confident that that car was that safety orange, but it wasn't. All right, another car here that uh, I think this one, you know what, I, I'm going to say that this car, for me anyway, does not belong in this list. It's one that I actually like, and I think maybe it's something that I've just kind of grown to like over the years. And, you know, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, a little bit of nostalgia, I guess, looking back at it, um, if you can call it nostalgia. It's the Plymouth Prowler. And the Plymouth Prowler was built between 1997 and 2002. Now, I know that this is one of those cars that... Um, you know, it separates a lot of people. They, they either love it or hate it, and I don't think anybody's kind of like 50-50 about the Plymouth Prowler. Um, it has that retro styling, kind of a hot rod look or a sportster style, you know, from, I, I don't know, maybe the 30s or something. I don't remember exactly what car was or if there was a car that was, uh, was, was you know, it was designed after, but... Um, an interesting looking vehicle anyway. And and now, I mean, if you see one now, and I have recently, I've seen them on the road, I've seen them at dealerships even for sale, not, uh, you know, used car dealers, obviously, not a new car. Um, but it, I think it's a fantastic looking car. The problem was the same problem, or the problem with it even now, is the same problem that people had with it right from the very beginning. If you're going to make a car that looks this cool, that looks this, uh, this like much like a hot rod, it needs to have a, a strong engine, a strong V8 engine under the hood. It needs to have, you know, Corvette-like performance. It needs to have something like that. Uh, the problem was they, they just put in kind of a basic Chrysler engine, and it was a 3.5-liter V6 and 250 horsepower. The car had a hard time getting out of its own way. It really did. It was just, a, it was not fast. It wasn't, it wasn't particular, and it wasn't super slow or anything. It just wasn't what you would expect when you see the Prowler. It's a dramatically styled vehicle. You would expect some dramatic performance out of this car. And I know that a lot of people have modified them, have put in V8 engines, have kind of made them their own. And, and you know, there's some great versions of it out there. If you really want to get uh, one of these, if you, if you want one in your garage because it you know has that kind of cool retro look, and you're not concerned about going super fast. You're not concerned about um, you know taking it to the drag strip or anything like that. This is kind of a fun car to own. It's uh, I've, I've actually I've driven Prowlers in the past, and um, I, I happened to work for a Chrysler during the time when they were building this, and we were able to uh, to have some of them at the studio that I worked at, and I was able to drive them, and I was I was happy with it. I, I thought it was fun because I wasn't again trying to race it or anything like that. I wasn't trying to drive super fast or you know corner really hard with it. That's what the Vipers were there for. Um, but again, I don't agree with that one being on this list. <laughs> uh, the next one I want to talk about is the oh this one in particular. Um, 
They call it one certain model of this vehicle or one certain generation of this vehicle. And this is the Lincoln Continental Mark IV. And it was built in 1972 to 1976. And so this is the Mark IV, the fourth fourth version of this vehicle. Um, this is a huge car. It's a great big automobile. And really, I think the only reason it's on this list is because it was just kind of an excessive vehicle. It was so, so big. Had a 460 cubic inch engine. That's a 7.5 liter engine, a three-speed automatic. Um, this thing was 228 inches long, uh, which makes it about 19 feet long. So it's a great big car. Has, you know, the, the enormous doors on the side. It's, it's a two-door vehicle. Um, I think if you recall, it had the uh, kind of the the false spare tire at the back, you know, that had that that look, you know, the uh, uh, the wheel as if it's facing the back end of the vehicle in the trunk. Um, as they say, it is a great big well, you know, wasteful giant car, and I, I don't, I don't really see it that way. I mean, maybe at the time it was, uh, it was kind of excessive. I think it's kind of a cool car to look at now, and it would be really cool to have one. I think. I mean, outside of you know fuel prices and all that, that would be tough. But um, I guess it would be a simple car to work on. Of course, you know, it'd be pretty easy to work on the old great big V8 engine. And I guess there's a lot of room under that hood. If you look at the hood of a Lincoln Continental Mark IV, uh, you will see that even you could almost put. It looks like you could put three giant V8 engines underneath there, and you'd still have room underneath the hood. It's it's an enormous car, but uh, kind of a cool kind of a cool addition to the list. I mean, I, again, I, it has to be just because it, on here just because of the excess. You know, just it's a, a huge wasteful car. And you know what? Let's uh, let's continue on with our list in just a minute. And we've got one that's coming up here that is an English car that I think you'll be interested in. And uh, you know, we'll do that right after we take a word from our sponsor. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, 
and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. And we're back, and you're listening to Car Stuff, and I'm your host, Scott Benjamin. And just before the break, we had talked about maybe uh, including an English car on this list. And uh, the one that we were included, I don't think many of you that will, many of you will find this hard to believe, but um, it's the Reliant Robin. Now, the Reliant Robin um, has had some some funny moments in uh, in popular culture recently. In fact, uh, Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear did a very funny, um, I guess. Little skit, I guess, about the <laughs> Reliant Robin and how many how many times that it rolled over. It was a it was a funny bit. It was a funny episode, um, but he was continually rolling this thing over. And the reason that it was rolling over, he's trying to prove the instability of the vehicle. And I think that later it was found out that the car was actually weighted so that it it actually tipped over more than it normally would have. You know, just for for you know comedy reasons. But um, you can read into that and you know find out exactly what happened uh, with that whole thing. But it was, it was later discovered that he did that. It was, it was just for good humor. It was fun. Uh, but the reason that it was so tipsy, the reason that the Reliant Robin is, is kind of, a, well, it's actually, it's a pretty poor design, really. Um, and that's because it's in, uh, well, it's a three-wheel vehicle. We need to say it up front. It's, a, it's what's called a Delta configuration, which is the, uh, the, the three-wheel car configuration where there is one wheel up front, and that's the steering wheel up front. And uh, it just inherently makes the thing want to tip over when you're making a right or left turn. It wants it to, uh, you know, kind of nose over onto its, uh, you know, right or left side. The better configuration for a three-wheel vehicle, as we found out, um, actually has been known for a long time. I'm not sure why they did it this way. Morgan has done this in the past, you know, going all the way back to the uh, the, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, is the tadpole configuration. And the tadpole configuration is when we have two wheels up front and one in the back. And sometimes, you know, there's even a, a variation on this. You can have, you know, the two wheels up front steering. You can also have the one wheel out back steering. Um, there's several different versions of that um, that can happen as well. But again, tadpole configuration is far more stable than the the, uh, than the Delta configuration. Now, the Reliant Robin, uh, just so we can kind of get some uh, background on exactly what this is all about, it was a car that uh, was made in the United Kingdom from 1973 to 1981. And then from 1989 to about 2001, uh, it was also made in the UK. It was uh, brought back. It was kind of revamped, I guess. And then it went away again in 2001. And it was manufactured then by a company called B&N Plastics. Now, um, I guess being well, the reason um, that it went away, I guess, is uh, um, it says due. To, here's the here's the quote um, on, from BNN Plastics. Uh, due to various problems, production of all vehicles was put on hold in October of 2002. Um, I can imagine that that's. <laughs> I think we all know what some of the the problems were. It's it's physics. <laughs> That's the that's the issue there at that car, um, but the Reliant Rob actually the one that we're talking about is called the Reliant Robin BN One, and the BN One actually has a fuel economy of around eighty miles per gallon, which is uh, which is pr- 
pretty good. Um, they also, you know, at the time when they closed, too, I should mention this, they had plans to make a an all-electric Reliant Robin uh, with a uh, something like a range of like 50 miles and top speed of around 50 or 55 miles per hour. So, you know, it's funny. They, they had plans to even bring this – you know, far into the future, but uh, but just never realized that was uh, that was the issue. Um, the next one on our list here, uh, this is also not going to come as a surprise to anybody. The Yugo. Now we talked about the Yugo in the very first uh, uh, revamped, I guess, episode of of car stuff when we came back just a few episodes ago, talking about the Bricklin SV1 because the person that was responsible for bringing uh, this car to the U.S. in 1985 was Malcolm Bricklin, and uh, believe it or not, this car was made. Okay, we know it was made around 1980. That it didn't come here until 1985. Started in 1980 in, in Yugoslavia, of course. It was built all the way until 2008, which I find hard to believe. But, um, you know, when it did come here to the U.S., and we, we talked about how popular this car was, it sold 163,000 units in just three years, which made it, I, I think it was like the best-selling or the hottest-selling new car in the American market at the time, or maybe the new hottest-selling new small car. There was some kind of uh, um, classification that, that made it that, but might possibly even the best-selling car at the time. Uh, it was also the least expensive new car sold in the U.S. at the time, and the price was around $3,990 brand new, um, and th- that would get you the Yugo GV, and GV stood for great value. Um, in fact, actually, you know, I bet a lot of people don't know this, but there were um, – actually, it looks like uh, six versions um, of, of the Yugo that were sold here in the United States. There was the, the GV, which was, of course, great value, the GVC, which had a glass sunroof. So these are minor differences between them. So the GVC had a glass sunroof, uh, the GVL, which was nearly identical to the GVC. There was the GVS, which had a few, you know, like minor trim and upholstery upgrades. There was the GVX, uh, which was kind of the sportier version of the uh, of the Yugo, if you can imagine that. It had a a thirteen hundred cc engine and a five speed manual transmission. And then there was even a convertible version that was sold in nineteen eighty eight. If uh, if you remember the Yugo convertible, I, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a Yugo convertible, but. Um, they're out there somewhere. I'm sure you can find one. Find one somewhere. They're they're a lightweight vehicle. Got you know decent fuel mileage, decent gas mileage. It only weighed something like 1,800 pounds, so it was pretty you know pretty lightweight. Uh, got decent gas mileage. Of course, built in Yugoslavia and uh, didn't last very long here in the United States. It wasn't uh, wasn't terribly popular after people started to realize just how unreliable these cars were. And speaking of. Uh, well, I don't know if I should say unreliable. It's just something that not many people are, are familiar with or not really, many people really would want to uh, want to own here in the United States anyways, at least. This is an East German car. Uh, it was built in 1957 to 1991, and that is the Trabant. Now, the Trabant, um, and I've heard that pronounced a couple different ways. I say Trabant. Um, but it, it was uh, – it's one of the um, – it's one of the cars from East Germany before, you know, it was uh, before the wall came down, before East Germany, West Germany combined. And uh, we did a, an episode that I know featured uh, the Trabant um, back in July of 2013. It was called Cars of the Iron Curtain. And we described exactly how, uh, well, geez, how miserable it was to, to get one of these. Um, you know, because you often were on waiting lists. You know, it was a, it was a car that was, com- you know, completely outdated by the time you got it. You were on waiting lists for sometimes many, many years at a time in order to get a new vehicle and kind of having to make do with whatever you had, you know, at the time. And so this car, again, it was built in East Germany from 1957 to 1990, but it did continue on after Germany was unified and uh, from 1990 just until 1991. So another, you know, one year of production, maybe two, maybe two if you count model years. 
Um, but there were something like 3.7 million of these cars produced. So they're out there, just not very prevalent here in the United States, but around the world, yeah, you can find Trabants still still hanging out. I don't know how many of them are in, in great shape or anything like that, or if there's even a, you know, an, um, an owner's club, you know, that's excited about owning the Trabants. I'm sure there are. There's, uh, there's, there's clubs for just about everything. Maybe even the next vehicle on our list, which is the Toyota Previa. Now, the Toyota Previa, um, I think this is one that's, uh, well, there's actually three generations. It's made in Japan. It's an old, um, well, the the first one, I guess, the first generation was a, um, this is kind of crazy. This is a, a mid-engine, a mid-engine minivan. Uh, I know that's kind of hard to believe. It's uh, <laughs> For a while, it even had a supercharged gasoline engine. Then it had a turbocharged diesel engine uh, for a while. But um, it's, again, a front mid-engine, I guess. It's a rear-wheel drive layout. Um, But that mid-engine of all things in a minivan, makes it kind of like really well-balanced. It's it's kind of a, I, I, from what I hear, it's a fun car to drive. There's the first-generation cars, which uh, which have, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a unique look, let's put it that way. And they were built from 1991 um, until about 1997. And I think actually the model year maybe is 1991 because I, I believe they were built in 1990. But uh, these are still being made. They're, they're still uh, being produced in, uh, in Japan. And um, also, I think in... They might even be produced. They were being produced in Australia, I believe. Um, but uh, again, if you can get your hands on one of these older versions and make it into a track car, maybe of some kind, <laughs> you might want might want to give that a shot and see what happens. But uh, yeah, that that mid engine thing is is kind of funny. Now, they have, of course, switched in the third generation to a front engine, front wheel drive, um, and then a front engine, four wheel drive model. So uh, you know, it seems like. I don't know. It seems like, it seems like um, maybe get your hands on one of those first two generations and, and you're doing all right. Um, the next one, we're getting close to the end here on this list, I, I promise. But uh, the next one is the Chevy SSR. Now, the Chevy SSR was built in Lansing, Michigan, and this is the uh, General Motors pickup, the Chevrolet pickup, rather, that uh, had kind of that old retro look. It was supposed to look like a 1947, 1955 Chevy pickup truck. Um, it was, of course, inspired by those 40s pickup trucks. It has this retro look with kind of like, you know, all the, the modern technology underneath. So, um, or modern for the time, anyway. It has the, the 400 horsepower, 400 pound-foot of torque uh, LS2 V8 that at the time was going inside the base Corvette, you know, back in 2005. So, um, not bad. It was also used in the 2005 to 2006 GTO, that same engine. Um, but they only made this car for just a very few years, or this truck, I should say, for just a couple of years from 2003 until 2006 and uh, you know it's got a, a pretty good fan base there's a lot of people that really like these I still see them around town still see them for sale occasionally around here and there um, price tags are still kind of high on these things they're not uh, you still can't find them extremely cheap but they're they definitely come down from what they were brand new and uh, probably worth looking at if you if you ever see one for sale Um all right, I got another one here that is an unusual one. Uh, this is really unusual before we get to one that uh, probably more people are familiar with. Uh, this one is the Peel Trident. Now, the Peel Trident was a car that was built between 1965 and 1966 only. It was very, very small production, very short production, uh, but it's an extremely small two-seat car. This is a three-wheeled car. It was a bubble car, you know, like one of the old micro cars that we've talked about in the past. We even had an episode, I believe, entirely on bubble and micro cars. Uh, This was made... Um, right after, uh, th- right after the Peel P50, which was also a, a microcar. In fact, the Peel P50 was the world.
world's smallest three-wheel car ever produced. Um, it was the uh, the smallest micro car ever produced that was actually road going. It was, uh, it was an interesting thing. And I, again, once again, I think uh, Top Gear did kind of a funny thing with uh, with Jeremy. Um, actually dragging this thing through a building into an elevator or that type of thing. It was it was designed uh, with no uh, rear gear. There was no uh, reverse gear, rather. And uh, you actually got out and picked it up almost like you would a wheelbarrow and, and wheeled it into place if you wanted to park it or you could just kind of carry it along with you, honestly. I mean, you, you weren't picking the whole thing up, but you were uh, you're picking up one end of it and wheeling it around. It was kind of a strange, strange vehicle. These were made... Um, by a company called Peel Engineering Limited. And they started making the um, Peel Trident um, in a place called, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm reading this here on, on this, uh, in this article. It says that in 2011, Peel Engineering Limited actually restarted manufacturing the Peel Trident in a place called Sutton, on, boy, this is a long name, so Sutton in Ashfield near Nottingham, England. Aren't all those names like that in England? It seems like all towns are, are named like three or four things. Uh, Sutton in Ashfield near Nottingham, England. And uh, all the vehicles are, are hand-built to order, and you can get them in gasoline or electric form, which I think is kind of cool for uh, the revamp of the, of the Peel Trident. But, you know, the original, um, the original Peel Trident, of course, it had, it had two seats, which I guess already made it different from the Peel P50, which, uh, which only had one seat. Uh, it had two seats, but the, here's the thing. If you wanted to, you could include a detachable shopping basket, which took the place of the second passenger. So, you know, if you wanted two people, that's fine. If you wanted rather to carry your shopping basket with you, uh, you could bring that along <laughs> in, instead of a passenger. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was marketed as a shopping car or a saloon scooter, which I found kind of funny um, it's only 73 inches long, which is about six feet long, and uh, it's also very, very narrow. It's only 39 inches wide, so that's about a little, a little more than three feet. You got to be pretty cozy with whoever your your uh, your passenger might be. It has a total weight of just 330 pounds, so it's very, very lightweight. And just like the Peel 50, uh, yeah, the Peel P50, it has a 49 cc engine, which means that that salon uh, saloon scooter, um, the scooter designation is, is because it's a 49 cc. It's under 50. CCs counts as a, a moped, but it's a, a DKW engine which has only 4.2 horsepower and a top speed of about 28 miles per hour. So uh, that's 45 kilometers per hour if you're if you're counting it that way. Um, and it was advertised that the Trident could get 100 miles per gallon, imperial gallon, which means about 83 miles per gallon U.S. 83 miles per gallon. Can you imagine driving a car right now? They got 83 miles per gallon, which would be really decent. And it says it's almost almost cheaper than walking. <laughs> I think that's a pretty funny funny addition. It's, it's anyways, one of the smallest cars in the world and and um oh, by the way, we should also talk about how low the production numbers on this were. We said that it was built from 1965 to 1966. Only 45 of these things were built. So if you happen to see one, you know, in a museum or, you know, even a collector that owns one somewhere, it's extremely rare. Outside of the ones that have been remanufactured in 2011, I'm talking about the original production. Uh, just 45 were built. Um, so it's actually a pretty rare find. If you, if you happen to run across one, maybe you should pick it up. Uh, the very last car on our list is – I'm going to take a moment here to just kind of describe this because – what happened here is they uh, they've actually given the very last car in this list this uh, this kind of best of the worst list. Uh, they've given the spot to a series of engines that came out in a make of of a vehicle. It's, they came out in an old in the Oldsmobile, uh, 
And in Oldsmobiles, they they ran diesel engines for a very short time, from about 1978 to 1985. So, well, they they kind of pick on one vehicle here, the uh, the 1979 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme Diesel. It's actually a whole line of Oldsmobile cars that had kind of the same problems. So uh, they all had to deal with with these diesel issues and. Boy, it was a it was a bad time in the United States for diesel engines, and, and there's a, a I guess some good reasons uh, good reasons for that, or you know we just hadn't really developed it, hadn't worked it out quite a bit or quite yet. Um, the problem was that these these were of course pretty big cars at this time. I mean, they, they produced three versions of the diesel engine between 1978 and 1985, and they went into uh, several different. Several different cars and approximately 310,000 units, which is about 60% of the total U.S. passenger vehicle sales of diesel market vehicles at the time. So uh, that's a pretty big, uh, big percentage right there. And that was the peak of sales in about 1981. Um, now, they powered both front and rear-wheel drive vehicles. And... There was a 4.3-liter V6 that was adapted to both um, uh, transverse and inline front-wheel front wheel drive applications. And... Here's the problem. The success was, you know, in 1981, of course, they went into all these different cars, and they looked at that as a success. The problem was it was really short-lived because the gas prices started to drop after the uh, after the fuel embargo went away. And, uh, you know, of course, there was also fuel quality issues at the time. And so a lot of, you know, these cars that are using diesel fuel, there's a lot of uh, sources, a lot of um, producers that are creating diesel fuel that, um, you know, contain water or other foreign particles. It was just... It was bad diesel. There were there were fuel supply issues all along the way. So that's one thing that they were battling. Um, but here's here's maybe the biggest thing. And um, well, maybe not. I can't even say the biggest thing really. But um, they got this this reputation for unreliability and kind of just poor performance, which I'll tell you about in just a minute. And what happened was that. At the time, you know, this was the, this was the face of diesel in America at the time, and that was the problem because in North America, you know, passenger the passenger diesel market was hurt for about the next thirty years based on everybody's opinion of the cars from nineteen seventy eight to nineteen eighty five that Oldsmobile put out. So um, that was one of the major uh, hurdles that people had to overcome thirty years later uh, to kind of kind of get over that and and trust diesel again. And then we all know what happened with Volkswagen here and. Uh, and you know some of the troubles that that caused, and, and it seems like uh, diesel is just—it's been fighting an uphill battle ever since here in the United States. I don't know how long it's going to take for the United States to to regain its trust in diesel once again. Uh, I know there there are other manufacturers that create some fantastic you know strong diesel engines, but uh, there have been some real real um, you know stumbling blocks along the way. Now, one good thing—this is actually a really good thing. Um, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on the good thing just for a minute. I want to tell you more about the bad just just for a second, and then we'll get into the really good thing. But the, you know, I mentioned I mentioned the poor performance. You know, these were pretty big diesel engines at the time. I, they were they were V8 and V6 engines, but but decent size. You know, the power of these these bigger vehicles. The problem was they just didn't have the power to power those big vehicles. Um, so we're looking at engines that had you know horsepower ratings of something like 85 to 120 horsepower, and we're talking about in a you know a big, heavy, large vehicle. You know that was uh, um, you know tough to get moving, tough to merge on the highways, tough to you know pull out into traffic. So this this really poor performance. Um, was something that really, really hurt them. Now, I said I was going to mention something that was good news about these things, and um, 
The one good thing is that these Oldsmobile diesel engines, they had extremely strong blocks. So you'll see that these blocks are, are still used in vehicles that people have converted over to gasoline-powered engines, particular, in particular race engines. So they use these old diesel blocks from these Oldsmobiles and, uh, and convert them to gasoline. And because, you know, they're built for extremely high pressure for diesel applications, um, they're, they're, uh, they're bulletproof. They're very, very strong, uh, strong blocks. And, uh, and people really seem to uh, kind of gravitate towards those for, for racing engines. So I, th- I think that's a, a decent thing, a uh, decent uh, legacy for those. But, um, you know, it's too bad that it really harmed Oldsmobile's uh, reputation as well as Diesel's reputation for quite a long time after that. And uh, again, I don't know if Diesel, um, yeah, I know Diesel didn't, but I don't know if Oldsmobile ever completely recovered from that. And uh, as we know, you know, that brand is gone um, at this time. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I have a whole lot more to cover on this. I know that, you know, this list, this uh, the 17 best bag cars ever built, and again, this comes from The Coolest. That's the site if you want to go check that one out. It's thecoolest.com um, and search for that, uh, you know, those keywords, you'll find it. Um, I know it's not a, uh, a complete list. It's it's they never are, right? I mean, it's just a, a short list that someone th- threw together. Uh, but I, I think they're fun. They're fun to go through and kind of you know pick out your own. Uh, you know, I I agree with that. I don't agree with that. And I hope I've done that along the way. You know, some at least, and uh, maybe kind of made you think about some other things. You know, some other vehicles along the way that you think are some of the uh, the best bad cars ever built uh, for whatever reason. You know, they have redeeming qualities. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're just pure bad. I don't know. Uh, just write in and tell us exactly what you think about this list. And and uh, maybe you've seen other lists or maybe you've got your own list that you'd like to send in and, and talk about. And, you know, if you want to do that, we're, we're definitely hooked up on the, uh, on the social networks. We've got uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we are CarStuffHSW at all three of those. And if you want to go to our website and check out our archive of material where we have, uh, gosh, it seems like it's well over 900 episodes at this point uh, from the uh, going back all the way to 2008, uh, you can go to carstuffshow.com and check us out there. Thanks again for listening. Car Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.